you'll find out that to be unmatched in this context is to be unrivaled, to be sovereign above all others, alone having supreme authority, supreme power, supreme ability, supreme rank, and supreme resources. Somebody that has, has been blessed by God with his resources ought to say amen. amen. Listen, listen, when, when, when we think and when we've come to the end of what we're able to do, and when we think there is no other way, I know that I can speak for myself when I say that God has always made a way where there seemed to be no way. He has provided for my God shall supply, Paul says, all of my needs. According to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, he has supreme resources. He's unmatched. Merritt Hughes says this about God. God is the supreme uncreated light of which wisdom is born. There was never a time when God's wisdom did not exist. Let me say it this way. I told y'all last week I'm from the hood. Grew up not far from here. Let me, let me say it this way in my own vernacular. Can't nobody beat God being God. I know, the, I know the adjectives and the verbs and all that don't line up together, but that's the way I like to say it. Can't nobody beat God being God. Uh, many have tried. He's often imitated, but he's never been duplicated. I'm reminded that even Satan, who was then known as Lucifer, attempted to imitate God, but it didn't work out so well. It's recorded in Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, you'll find the record of what happened when Lucifer tried to imitate God. It says this, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will let me just say this. Let me pause. Anytime everything you say has an I in it, <laughs> if your prayers are filled with I and my and me, you're headed for destruction, right? Satan, Lucifer says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And we know what happened. He failed from heaven. He failed from grace. Uh, and so it's always dangerous to try to be on the level, on level with God. Right? He is unmatched in all of his wisdom, in all of Everything. He's unmatched. In verse 1 of our text, we see the unmatched authority of God on display. In verse 1, we have three affirmative, conclusive statements. We have two I haves and one I will. Here's what verse 1 says. How long will you grieve over Saul? Since, here it is, I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. And go, here it is, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For, here we go again, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. 
We often ourselves make these statements. You know, we say what we will do, what we have done. We, we think we have authority. We, we make these statements ourselves. Uh, but there's a difference. Uh, there is uh, a definitive difference when we make these statements versus when God makes these statements. Uh, when God makes these statements, he has the power and authority and the unrivaled wisdom to bring it to pass. And so he says, I have rejected him. God is the only one holding the stamps. And one says approved, the other says rejected. Uh, just pause, let me say this, you don't hold the stamps. You can't approve or reject anyone. God holds the stamps. And when God says, I have rejected him, it means something. He has the stamps. One says approved, one says rejected. And the sovereign God has stamped Saul rejected. Now, now to understand Saul's rejection, we have to back up and we have to pick up the story in chapter 8. Because in chapter 8, Samuel is serving as judge of Israel. But something happens to Samuel that if we live long enough will happen to all of us. The story says in chapter 7 that Samuel is serving as judge of Israel, but Samuel gets old. <laughs> Let me just say this, getting old ain't no fun. Right? Some of you say, look at me and say, I'm, uh, he's not that old. How can he? Well, let me just tell you that it takes me a little longer than it took me when I was in my 20s to get up in the morning. There's some funny things that are happening to my hair that I think somebody's sneaking in in the middle of the night when I'm sleeping and putting some gray, some kind of different color dye in my hair. Because every morning when I wake up, it seems to be whiter than it was when I went to sleep last night. Things hurt on me now that I didn't even know I had. I, I used to do things that I, that I can't do anymore. I try. But getting old is no fun. And the text says that Samuel is getting old and he realizes it. Not only does he realize it, but all of Israel realizes, Sam, you're getting old, brother. And it's time for you to step down. You, we, we, so, so what Sam decides to do, if I can call him Sam. There's a Sam. Sam said, amen. Call him Sam. Sam decides, Samuel decides that I am getting old and getting old ain't no fun. It's hard for me to do what I used to do. So he decides to appoint his two sons as judges over Israel. So he appoints Joel, his son, and Abijah, his sons, to be his successors. Uh, but once they are appointed... Samuel's sons, the text says, falls victim to the temptations, to temptations of material gain, and they fail miserably in being judges. And so when they fail, the people come to Samuel and they demand to have a king. Now, it wasn't so bad that they demanded to have a king, but the problem was the reason why they wanted a king, right? And so God had provided everything for them. But the, there's a reason why they say, Samuel, your sons have let us down. We want a king. Here's the catch. Because everybody else has one. Now let me just pause again. I got a few pauses in here today. 
Let me pause again and just give you this. This is for free. If you want anything because your only reason for wanting it is because somebody else has it, you're in trouble. Right? I can remember growing up not far from here, and I tried that when I was growing up as a child. I would say, I want this or that because my friends have it. And y'all know, I know, you, you know, you know what the response was, don't you? Somebody help me. I don't care. I don't care what, what th- this is my house. We, we do things my way. Was, was the response I got. And I simply say that to say that if you find yourself desiring to be like somebody else simply because you want to be like them or have what they have, you're headed for trouble. And Israel says to Samuel, Samuel, we want a king because, that, because number one, your sons have failed miserably. But number two, we, the main reason we want one is because everybody else has one. Trouble, 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 trouble. That's a big mistake. And so God, uh, through Samuel, after, after telling Samuel, Samuel, don't distress. They haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. Finally, God relents and try, before, before he relents, he tries to warn them, right? Listen, I can give you a king, but you're not going to really like the king that you're going to have. He tries to warn them. He says to them, uh, here's what, you, what the king will, be, will do to you. If, if I grant you a king, give you a king, here's the problem. He, he will take your sons and he'll appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, vineyards and olive orchards. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. Now, for me, that would have been enough to say, never mind. I'll pass on the king thing. Can you just give us another judge? But the people respond by saying, none of that matters. None of that matters. We want a king like every other nation. They were persistent in their desire to have a king. So in chapter 9, God relents. And Saul is chosen as the first king of Israel. Uh, now, here's the thing. Saul appeared, if you looked at him and if you knew his background, he appeared to have all the makings of a king. He was tall. He was attractive. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a capable and experienced military leader, but he also had a rebellious nature. And he would not share his power and popularity, which led to trouble, just as God had predicted that it would. Trouble starts in chapter 13. Chapter 13, he failed to wait for Samuel at Gilgal, made excuses for his failure. Then in chapter 14, he neglected the needs of his own men and swore a foolish oath that almost cost the life of his very son, Jonathan. Then finally, in chapter 15... The straw that broke the camel's back was when he failed to kill King Agag and all the Amalekites along with the livestock. Then he lies to Samuel about it. God says to to Saul, go to Amalek, kill everything in sight. Don't bring anything back with you. 
And Sam and, and, and Saul uh, says, I, I'll do that. And he goes and he does not do what God sent him to do. Rather than doing what God sent him to do, he decides that he's going to bring back the best of the livestock. And not only that, he decides to spare the life of King Agag. And he comes and he does that. And so Samuel approaches him and says, did you do what God, we're just trying to get you to the reason why God rejects Saul, right? Did you do what God told you to do? And I can just see Saul sticking out his chest. Why, yes, I did everything God told me to do. I, I destroyed everything. And Samuel says, if that's the case, then what is this noise I hear in the background? Why do I hear these sheep bleeding in the background? What, what is it that you have done? Don't you know that obedience is better than sacrifice? So because of this, God has rejected you. You had three chances and you failed every time. And so he says, I have rejected him. Uh, he says, not only does he say, I have rejected him, and it holds power because he holds the stamps. He also says this. He says, I will send thee. Now, I can tell you that I'm sending you somewhere, and it's not, it's not going to have the same impact that if God sends you somewhere, because there is something that goes along with someone who is sent when that person is sent by the one who has ultimate authority, ultimate wisdom. You know what that thing is? It's favor. When God sends you somewhere, favor goes before you. And somebody said a long time ago, favor ain't fair. And it, I don't, I, it doesn't have to be fair because it's just. God says, I'm going, watch this, I'm going to bless you and people are going to bless you that when you get there, they don't even like you. Has anybody else in the room ever experienced people that you know don't like you? Now, I know y'all different than me. All, none of y'all have anybody that doesn't like you. Everybody likes you, right? You've never, you, let, me just, let me just share some more, give you another news flash. There are some folks that don't like you. <laughs> I know you may not reckon, realize it right now because they're undercover. Yeah. The, 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 they're the ones that smile in your face, right? They're the ones that say, I, 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 I'm on your side. They'll shake your hand. They'll smile at you. They'll say, I'm praying for you. But those are the last people on the face of this earth that you really want praying for you. But when God sends you somewhere, he will cause even those folks to bless you. And they'll be wondering when they get back home, now why did I do that? <laughs> why did I do that? I, I can't stand her. I don't know why. why God, it's because God is with you. And so when God sends you, favor goes along. He says, I will send you, which means when you get there, don't worry about it. I know you're concerned about what might happen. Don't worry because I'm sending you and favor will be with you. Not only that, he says, I have provided me a king. God can say that and mean it. God can say that and bring it to pass. He's already predetermined, predestined who the next king. He says, I've already chosen him. You may not know who it is, but I already know who it is. I have provided me a king. I've chosen him 
provided him for my people. First lesson that we see in the text is that God's wisdom is unmatched. Next lesson that I see from this text is God's wisdom revealed in his attention to detail. God's wisdom revealed in this story in his attention to detail. His ways, by the way, are not random. His ways are not accidental. His wisdom is not coincidental. It doesn't happen by chance. But rather, it's very specific. It's very detailed, very thought out, great deal of foresight and planning goes into anything that God does. He's never caught off guard by anything. He's never ill-prepared for anything. He is very deliberate in everything that he does. He does not do anything, Martha, by happenstance. He does not just do anything because something came to mind. You know, that's what we do. We just do stuff, say stuff. We have no idea what it is. And let me just tell you, once it comes out, you can't bring it back. You can't unring the bell. But God, whenever God says something, whenever God does something, he's already thought it through. He's very specific and deliberate in everything he does. I can prove it to you. He sends Samuel to a deliberate town, Bethlehem. It wasn't an accident that he sends him to Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem, the name means house of bread. He sends him to the house of bread, a small town. Although it was nothing but a small hamlet, it was well known to the Jewish people. Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, died near Bethlehem while giving birth to Benjamin. It was in Bethlehem that Ruth, the Moabitess, met and married Boaz and gave birth to Obed. David's grandfather. David himself would make Bethlehem famous, and of course, the son of David would later be born in Bethlehem. He sends him to this specific place, this specific town, but then he also sends him to a specific family. He sends him to Jesse's house. It wasn't an accident. He didn't just randomly select Jesse and his family for Samuel to go to. There's a reason. If you trace the history, you'll see that God had been at work long before now in this family, planning for this time. He brought Rahab, a pagan idolatress, into the nation of Israel, and she married Salmon and gave birth to Boaz, who marries Ruth and has Obed, who's David's grandfather. He, God's been at work a long time in this family. It wasn't an accident that he sends him to Jesse's house. He sends him to a deliberate town, to a deliberate and specific family, but then he sends him to a deliberate and specific person, which brings me to my third and final point. Not only is God's wisdom unmatched, And not only is God's wisdom revealed in his attention to detail, God's wisdom often challenges our preconceptions. We all have them. God sends Samuel to anoint the next king. The problem is that the only experience Samuel had with anointing a king was when he anointed Saul. That's the only thing in his mind about anointing a king. It's stuck in his mind. Uh, In chapter 9, verse 2 It reminds us that when Samuel looked at Saul, he looked kingly. He had the makings of a king. He was very handsome, very tall. In fact, the text says he was the tallest of anybody else in Israel. He had the qualifications, seemingly, of a king. So, because of this experience, Samuel has a preconceived notion about how a king should look. He's already made up in his mind. 
when he walks in the room and he sees Eliab. That's got to be him because he reminds me of Saul. He looks like Saul. He's tall. Like, he looks like a warrior like Saul was. He's already had, made, had his mind made up. Listen, don't get all judgmental about Samuel because all of us have preconceptions based on our experiences. Uh, the late theologian and preacher, preacher Dr. Charles E. Booth contends that there are many things that go into making up our slant in life, our view in life, our outlook on things, our preconceived notions in life. There are many things that flow into us all of our lives that bring us to where we are today. He says that there are streams, tributaries that flow into us all throughout life that shape and mold our psyche. Things like our family, the DNA of our family flow into us and make up what we, what we think about life, what we see about life, our outlook on life. The community that we were raised in, I've already shared with you several times where I was raised, and because of where I was raised and who raised me and the people that were around me, uh, my outlook on life was shaped to see things a certain way. It's not anybody's fault. It's just a reality. All of us have things that have flowed into us, things like our education. Education has an influence on how we see life now. Our friends that we associate with can influence how we see life. And watch this, even our enemies can give us a different outlook on life that meant that maybe some others might have. All these make deposits into us, and collectively they make up our experiences. Experiences, here's the thing, can cause you to go into a situation, situation thinking that you already know the outcome because it happened a certain way before. If you don't watch it, if you don't watch it, you can deny yourself of God's blessings. Because you've already made up your mind because of these streams and tributaries that have flowed into you throughout life and because it happened a certain way the last time that you've already decided, Samuel, that it's going to happen that way this time. But can I, just, can I just throw another one at you that may not sound right to you? God is about to flip the script. You've got to know that God will flip that thing on you. And when you look at it, it may not make any sense at all. It could have been the last thing that you thought that God would do. But that's what he does. He will flip that thing on you. And you, 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 you will think that you know the outcome. And so Samuel goes into this experience uh, thinking that he knows what the outcome is going to be. One must temper or suspend any predispositions when dealing with God. His wisdom and ways surprise us sometimes because here's the reason. He can see what we can't see. Verse 7 tells us that man looks on the outward appearance, but God is able with his x-ray vision. See, you can, I can look at you and make up my mind what I think about you. But the reality about you may be totally different. Right. And God can see what's happening on the inside because really it's about what's going on on the inside and not so much about what's happening on the outside. Samuel walks in. I'm almost done. He walks in. And they and, and, and Jesse begins to march the boys through. Eliab comes through. Abinadab, Shammah. 
And everyone that comes through the door, Samuel thinks, man, certainly this has got to be him. But God says, neither one of these, seven of them come through. And everyone, Samuel thinks, certainly this has got to be the king. God says, none of them qualify. None of them fit the bill. I know that all of them have kingly qualities. I know that you'd already made up your mind about the first one, but I can see what's happening on the inside. And so he says, ask Jesse, are all of your sons here? Because none of these qualify, and I have come to anoint the next king, and he's not here right now. So do you have any more sons? Jesse says, well, yeah, you know, there's one, the youngest the youngest boy, but he's out minding the sheep and you really don't want to see him because he's young, he's ruddy, he's cute. He don't look like a warrior. He's he's not tall like a warrior. He has a cute countenance. He's ruddy. Nobody would anoint him. He said, send for him. We're not going to sit down. Listen, David was not even invited to the party. Samuel says, send for him. We're not going to sit down until he gets here. And when he walks in the door, without saying a word, without being introduced, without anything happening, all he does is darken the door. And God says to Samuel, Samuel, anoint him because he's the king. Can you imagine that all the air was sucked out of the room? How could this, how could he be the king? Anoint him. He is, David was the youngest of eight boys and the least likely to succeed. He wasn't even invited to the gathering. But God, let me say this, uses the least likely to do the almighty All throughout scripture, all you have to do is read it. You'll find that he always uses. It's never the likeliest person. He always uses the least likely to do the almighty because it's what's on the inside that counts. David became the greatest king in the history of Israel, an ancestor to Jesus, listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, became a man after God's own heart, and he wasn't even invited to the party. Saul may have been a physical giant, but David was a spiritual giant. Let me just say this. You may not look the part. People may have told you that you don't look like this, and you don't qualify for this, and They've already made up their minds about you, but God wants to use you to shock the world. He wants to use you to shock the world. All throughout Scripture, we see it happen. He uses Moses, a murderer, least likely to succeed. He uses Nehemiah, a layman. Least likely to Amos, a herdman from Tekoa. Least likely Peter, a fisherman. Least likely Matthew, a tax collector. Least likely Paul, a persecutor. Least likely then, y'all know where I'm going. 
Somebody help me. He uses a baby boy born in a manger, grew up as a carpenter, a tender plant, a root out of a dry ground, had no form of comeliness, no beauty that we should desire him, despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But he was wounded for my transgression. He was bruised for my iniquities, a chastisement. My peace was upon him, and by his stripes, the least likely, a baby boy, I've been healed. God's wisdom is amazing. John Piper says this, and then I'm through. The wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God, not compromising the righteousness of God. Ooh, that deserves to be said again. I wish I had come up with that. Can I say it one more time? I promise I'm done. I know I've said that a few times, but that's what preachers do. You got to get about five I'm done's. Help me, Cormac. Isn't that right? You've been to churches all over the, all over the world. Ain't that, don't they happen everywhere? It's not just here, right? I, I promise, though, this is the last one. If, I can, if y'all just let me say this quote one more time. John Piper says, this is awesome. John Piper says, the wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. Now, that's amazing wisdom. So, I'm going to close with my big idea. Here it is. God's wisdom is beyond. It's not deep. This, this, This big idea is not deep, but it makes sense. God's wisdom is beyond amazing. It's beyond amazing. Can we pray? Gracious God, thank you for your amazing wisdom. Thank you for your favor. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love.